Section 2 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Chestnut. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5, Section 2. Letters by Otto von Bismarck To Frau von Arnhem, Schoenhausen, August 7, 1850 The fact is, this journey, and I see it more clearly the nearer it approaches, gives me a right of reversion on the new lunatic asylum, or at least a seat for life in the second chamber. I can already see myself on the platform of the Genthener Station, then both of us packed in the carriage, surrounded with all sorts of child's necessaries. An embarrassing company. Johanna, ashamed to suckle the baby, which accordingly roars itself blue. Then the passports, the inn, then at Stetten railway station, with both bellowing monkeys, then waiting an hour at Angermunde for the horses. And how are we to get from Kroslendorf to Kultz? It would be perfectly awful if we had to remain for the night at Stetten. I did that last year with Marie and her squallings. I was in such a state of despair yesterday over all these visions that I was positively determined to give the whole thing up, and at last went to bed with the resolve at least to go straight through, without stopping anywhere. But what will one not commit for the sake of domestic peace? the young cousins, male and female, must become acquainted, and who knows when Johanna will see you again. She pounced upon me last night with the boy in her arms, and with all those wiles which formerly lost us paradise. Of course she succeeded in wringing my consent that everything should remain as before. I feel, however, that I am as one to whom fearful injustice is done, and I am certain that I shall have to travel next year with three cradles, wet nurses, long cloths, and counterpanes. I am now awake by six o'clock, and already in a gentle simmer of anger. I cannot get to sleep, owing to all the visions of traveling which my imagination paints, in the darkest colors, even up to the picnics on the sand-hills of Stolpmunde, and then, if one were only paid for it, but to travel away the last remnants of a once handsome fortune with sucking babies. I am very unhappy. Well, Wednesday then, in Gersfolda, I should probably have done better by driving over Passau, and you would not have had so far to Prenzlau as to G. However, it is now a fait accompli, and the pain of selection is succeeded by the quiet of resignation. Johanna is somewhat nervous about her dresses, supposing you Boitzenbergers have company. To his wife. Frankfurt, August 7, 1851. I wanted to write you yesterday and today, but owing to all the clatter and bustle of business, could not do so until now, late in the evening on my return from a walk through the lovely summer night breeze, the moonlight, and the murmuring of poplar leaves, which I took to brush away the dust of the day's dispatches and papers. 
Saturday afternoon I drove out with Rauschow and Leiner to Rudesheim. There I took a boat, rowed out upon the Rhine, and swam in the moonlight with nothing but nose and eyes out of the water, as far as the Mussentherm, near Bingen, where the bad bishop came to his end. It gives one a peculiar dreamy sensation to float thus on a quiet, warm night in the water, gently carried down by the current, looking above on the heavens studded with the moon and the stars, and on each side the banks and wooden hilltops and the battlements of the old castles bathed in the moonlight, whilst nothing falls on one's ear but the gentle splashing of one's own movements. I should like to swim like this every evening. I drank some very fair wine afterwards, and then sat a long time with Linar, smoking on the balcony, the Rhine below us. My little New Testament and the star-studded heavens brought us on the subject of religion, and I argued long against the Rousseau-like sophism of his ideas, without, however, achieving more than to reduce him to silence. He was badly treated as a child by bonds and tutors, without ever having known his parents. Later on, in consequence of much the same sort of education as myself, he picked up the same ideas in his youth, but is more satisfied and more convinced by them than I ever was. Next day we took the steamer to Koblenz, stopped there an hour for breakfast, and came back the same way to Frankfurt, where we arrived in the evening. I undertook this expedition with the intention of visiting old Metternich, who had invited me to do so at Johannesburg, but I was so much pleased with the Rhine that I preferred to make my way over to Koblenz and to postpone the visit. When you and I saw it, we had just returned from the Alps, and the weather was bad. On this fresh summer morning, however, and after the dusty monotony of Frankfurt, the Rhine has risen very considerably in my estimation. I promised myself complete enjoyment in spending a couple of days with you at Rudesheim. The place is so quiet and rural, honest people and cheap living. We will hire a small boat and row at our leisure downwards climb up the Niederwald and a castle or two, and return with the steamer. One can leave this place early in the morning, stay eight hours at Rudesheim, Bingen, or Rheinstein, etc., and be back again in the evening. My appointment here appears now to be certain. Moscow, June 6, 1859 I will send you at least a sign of life from here while I am waiting for the samovar, and a young Russian in a red shirt is exerting himself behind me with vain attempts to light a fire. He puffs and blows, but it will not burn. After having complained so much about the scorching heat lately, I woke today between Tver and here, and thought I was dreaming when I saw the country in its fresh verdure covered far and wide with snow. I shall wonder at nothing again, and having convinced myself of the fact beyond all doubt, I turn quickly on the other side to sleep, and roll on farther, although the play of colors from green to white in the red dawn of day was not without its charm. I do not know of the snow still lies at fair. Here it has thawed away, and a cool gray rain is rattling on the green tin of the roofs. Green has every reason to be the Russian favorite color. Of the five hundred miles I have passed in traveling here, I have slept away about two hundred, but each hand-breadth of the remainder was green in every shade. 
towns and villages, and more particularly houses, with the exception of the railway stations, I did not observe. Bushy forests with birch trees cover swamp and hill, a fine growth of grass beneath, long tracts of meadowland between. So it goes on for fifty, one hundred, two hundred miles. Ploughed land I do not remember to have remarked, nor heather, nor sand. Solitary grazing cows or horses awoke one at times to the presumption that there might be human beings in the neighborhood. Moscow, seen from above, looks like a field of young wheat. The soldiers are green, the cupola's green, and I do not doubt that the eggs on the table before me were laid by green hens. You will want to know how I came to be here. I also have already asked myself this question, and the answer I received was that change is the soul of life. The truth of this profound saying becomes especially obvious after having lived for ten weeks in a sunny room of a hotel with a lookout on pavements. The charms of moving become rather blunted if they occur repeatedly within a short period. I therefore determined to forego them, handed over all paper to, gave Engel my keys, declared that I would put up a week at Steinbach's house, and drove to the Moscow station. This was yesterday at noon, and this morning at eight o'clock I alighted here at the Hotel de France. First of all, I shall pay a visit to a charming acquaintance of former times who lives in the country about twenty versts from here. Tomorrow evening I shall be here again. Wednesday and Thursday shall visit the Kremlin, and so forth. And Friday or Saturday sleep in the beds which Engel will meantime buy. Slow harnessing and fast driving lie in the character of this people. I ordered the carriage two hours ago. To every call which I have been uttering for each successive ten minutes of an hour and a half, the answer is, immediately, given with imperturbably friendly composure. But there the matter rests. You know my exemplary patience in waiting, but everything has its limits. Afterwards there will be wild galloping, so that on these bad roads horse and carriage break down, and at last we reach the place on foot. I have meanwhile drunk three glasses of tea, and annihilated several eggs. The efforts at getting warm have also so perfectly succeeded that I feel the need of fresh air. I should, out of sheer impatience, commence shaving if I had a glass. This city is very straggling and very foreign-looking, with its green-roofed churches and innumerable cupolas, quite different from Amsterdam, but both the most original cities I know. No German guard has a conception of the luggage people drag with them into the railway carriage. Not a Russian goes without two real pillows and white pillowcases, children in baskets, and masses of eatables of every kind. Out of politeness they bowed me into a sleeping-car where I was worse off than in my seat. Altogether it is astonishing to me to see the fuss made here about a journey. Moscow, June 8th This city is really, as a city, the handsomest and most original existing. The environs are cheerful, not pretty, not ugly but the view from the top of the Kremlin on this panorama of green-roofed houses, gardens, churches, spires of the strangest possible form and color, mostly green, or red, or bright blue, generally 
crowned at the top with a gigantic golden onion, and mostly five or more on one church, there are certainly a thousand steeples. Anything more strangely beautiful than all this lit up by the slanting rays of the setting sun it is impossible to see. The weather has cleared up again, and I should stay here a few days longer if there were not rumors of a great battle in Italy, which may perhaps bring diplomatic work in its train, so I will be off there and get back to my post. The house in which I am writing is, curiously enough, one of the few that survived 1812. Old, thick walls like those at Schoenhausen, oriental architecture, big Moorish rooms. June 28th, evening. After a three hours' drive through the gardens in an open carriage, and a view of all its beauties in detail, I am drinking tea with the prospect of the golden evening sky and green woods. At the Emperor's they want to be en famille the last evening, as I can perfectly well understand, and I, as a convalescent, have sought retirement, and have indeed done quite enough today for my first outing. I am smoking my cigar in peace and drinking excellent tea, and see, through the smoke of both, a sunset of really rare beauty. I send you the enclosed jasmine as a proof that it really grows and blossoms here in the open air. On the other hand, I must own that I have been shown the common chestnut in shrub form as a rare growth, which in winter is wrapped up. Otherwise, there are very fine large oaks, ash-trees, limes, poplars, and birches as thick as oaks. Petersburg, July 26, 1859 Half an hour ago a cabinet courier woke me with war and peace. Our policy drifts more and more into the Austrian wake, and when we have once fired a shot on the Rhine, it is over with the Italian-Austrian war, and in its place a Prussian-French comes on the scene, in which Austria, after we have taken the burden from her shoulders, stands by us, or fails to stand by us, just so far as her own interests require. She will certainly not allow us to play a very brilliant victor's part. As God wills, after all, everything here is only a question of time. Nations and individuals, folly and wisdom, war and peace, they come and go like the waves, but the sea remains. There is nothing on this earth but hypocrisy and jugglery, and whether fever or grape-shot tear off this fleshly mask, fall it must sooner or later. And then, granted that they are equal in height, a likeness will after all turn up between a Prussian and an Austrian which will make it difficult to distinguish them. The stupid and the clever, too, look pretty much alike when their bones are well picked. With such views a man certainly gets rid of his specific patriotism, but it would indeed be a subject for despair if our salvation depended on them. To his brother-in-law, Oscar von Arnhem. Rheinfeld, August 16, 1861. I have just finished the news of the terrible misfortune which has befallen you and Malvin. My first thought was to come to you at once, but in wanting to do so I overrated my powers. My regime has touched me up a good deal, and the thought of suddenly breaking it off met with such decided opposition that I have resolved to let Johanna go alone. 
such a blow goes beyond the reach of human consolation and yet it is a natural desire to be near those we love in their sorrow and to lament with them in common it is the only thing we can do a heavier sorrow could scarcely have befallen you to lose such an amiable and a so happily thriving child in such a way and to bury along with him all the hopes which were to be the joys of your old days sorrow over such a loss will not depart from you as long as you live on this earth this i feel with you with deep and painful sympathy we are powerless and helpless in god's mighty hand so far as he will not himself help us and can do nothing but bow down in humility under his dispensations he can take from us all that he gave and make us utterly desolate and our mourning for it will be all the bitterer the more we allow it to run to excess in contention and rebellion against his almighty ordinance do not mingle your just grief with bitterness and repining but bring home to yourself that a son and a daughter are left to you and that with them and even in the feeling of having possessed another beloved child for fifteen years you must consider yourself blessed in comparison with the many who have never had children nor known a parent's joy i do not want to trouble you with the feeble grounds for consolation but only to tell you in these lines how i as a friend and brother feel your suffering like my own and am moved by it to the very core how all small cares and vexations which daily accompany our life vanish at the iron appearance of real misfortune and i feel like so many reproaches the reminiscences of all complaints and covetous wishes over which i have so often forgotten how much blessing god gives us and how much danger surrounds us without touching us we are not to attach ourselves to this world and not regard it as our home another twenty or in the happiest case thirty years and we are both of us beyond the cares of this life and our children have reached our present standpoint and find with astonishment that the freshly begun life is already going downhill it would not be worth while to dress and undress if it were over with that do you still remember these words of a fellow traveller from stolpemunde the thought that death is the transition to another life will certainly do little to alleviate your grief for you might think that your beloved son might have been a true and dear companion to you during the time you were still living in this world and would have continued by god's blessing the memory of you here the circle of those whom we love contracts itself and receives no increase till we have grandchildren at our time of life we form no fresh bonds which are capable of replacing those that die off let us therefore keep the closer together in love until death separates us from one another as it now separates your son from us who knows how soon won't you come with male to stolpemunde and stay quietly with us for a few weeks or days at all events i shall come to you at kroschlendorf or wherever else you are in three or four weeks i greet my dearest male with all my heart may god give her as well as you strength to bear and patiently submit to his wife biarritz august fourth 
1862. I am afraid I have caused some confusion in our correspondence, as I induced you to write too soon to places where I have not yet arrived. It will be better for you to address your letters to Paris, just as though I were there. The embassy then sends them after me, and I can more quickly send word there if I alter my route. Yesterday evening I returned from San Sebastian to Bayonne, where I slept, and am now sitting here in a quarter room of the Hotel de l'Europe, with charming view on the blue sea, which drives its white foam through the curious cliffs against the lighthouse. I have a bad conscience for seeing so many beautiful things without you. If one could transport you here through the air, I would go directly back again to San Sebastian and take you with me. Fancy the Siebengebirge with the Drachenfels placed by the sea, close by Ehrenbreitenstein, and between the two pushing its way into the land, an arm of the sea, somewhat broader than the Rhine, and forming a round bay behind the mountains. In this you bathe in transparently clear water, so heavy and so salt, that you swim on top of it by yourself, and look through the broad gate of rocks into the sea, or landward where the mountain chains top each other, always higher, always bluer. The women of the middle and lower classes are strikingly pretty, occasionally beautiful. The men surly and uncivil, and the comforts of life to which we are accustomed are missing. The heat is not worse here than there, and I do not mind it. Find myself, on the contrary, very well, thank God. The day before yesterday there was a storm such as I have never seen anything like. I had to take a run three times before I could succeed in getting up a flight of three steps on the jetty. Pieces of stone and large fragments of trees were carried through the air. Unfortunately, therefore, I countermanded my place in a sailing vessel to Bayonne, for I could not suppose that after four hours all would be quiet and cheerful. I lost thus a charming sail along the coast, remained a day more at San Sebastian, and left yesterday in the diligence, rather uncomfortably packed, between nice little Spanish women, with whom I could not talk a syllable. So much Italian, however, they understood, that I could demonstrate to them my satisfaction with their exterior. I looked to-day at a railway guide to see how I could get from here, that is, from Toulouse, by railway over Marseille to Nice, then by boat to Genoa, from there over Venice, Trieste, Vienna, Breslau, Posen, Stargard, to Koslin. If it were only possible to go over Berlin, I cannot very well pass through there just now. To his wife, Hohenmouth, Monday, July ninth, 1866. Do you still remember, my heart, how nineteen years ago we passed through here on the way from Prague to Vienna? No mirror showed the future, neither when, in 1852, I went along this line with the good Linnar. Matters are going well with us, if we are not immoderate in our demands, and do not imagine that we have conquered the world, we shall acquire a pace which will be worth the trouble. But we are just as quickly intoxicated as discouraged, and I have the ungrateful task of pouring water in the foaming wine, and making them see that we are not living alone in Europe, 
but with three neighbors still. The Austrians are in Moravia, and we are already so bold that their positions today are fixed for our headquarters tomorrow. Prisoners are still coming in, and 180 guns since the 3rd up to today. If they call up their southern army, with God's good help we shall beat them again. Confidence is universal. I could hug our fellows, each facing death so gallantly, so quiet, obedient, well-behaved, with empty stomachs, wet clothes, wet camp, little sleep, the soles of their boots falling off, obliging to everybody, no looting, no incendiarism, paying where they can, and eating moldy bread. There must, after all, abide in our man of the soil a rich store of the fear of God, or all that would be impossible. News of acquaintances is difficult to obtain. People are miles apart from one another. No one knows where the other is, and nobody to send. Men enough, but no horses. I have had Philip searched for for four days. He is slightly wounded in the head by a lance, as G. wrote to me, but I cannot find out where he is, and now we are already forty miles farther on. The king exposed himself very much indeed on the third, and it was a very good thing that I was with him, for all the warnings on the part of others were to no avail, and no one would have ventured to speak, as I allowed myself to do the last time, and with success, after a heap of ten men and fifteen horses of the sixth regiment of cuirassiers were wallowing in their blood near us, and the shells whizzed round the sovereign in the most unpleasant proximity. The worst, luckily, did not burst. But after all, I like it better than if he should err on the other side. He was enchanted with his troops, and rightly, so that he did not seem to remark all the whistling and bursting about him, as quiet and comfortable as on the Kreuzberg, and kept constantly finding battalions that he wanted to thank and say good evening to, until there we were again, under fire. But he has had to hear so much about it, that he will leave it alone for the future, and you can be at ease. Besides, I hardly believe in another real battle. If you have no news of a person, you can all implicitly believe that he lives and is well, as all casualties occurring to one's acquaintances are known in twenty-four hours at the longest. We have not come at all into communication with Herfath and Steinmetz, but know that they are both well. G. quietly leads his squadron with his arm in a sling. Goodbye. I must go on duty. Your most true V.B. To his wife. Note. This letter did not reach its destination, but together with the entire post was captured by Franck Thorers and published by a French newspaper. Vendressa, 3 September, 1870 My dear heart, I left my present quarters before early dawn the day before yesterday, came back today, and have in the meantime witnessed the great battle of Sedan, in which we made about thirty thousand prisoners, and through the remainder of the French army, which we have been pursuing since Bar-le-Duc, into the fortress, where they had to surrender themselves along with the Emperor, prisoners of war. Yesterday morning at five o'clock, 
after I had been negotiating until one o'clock a.m. with Moltke and the French generals about the capitulation to be concluded, I was awakened by General Rayla, with whom I am acquainted, to tell me that Napoleon wished to speak with me. Unwashed and unbreakfasted, I rode towards Sedan, found the Emperor in an open carriage with three aides de camp, and three attendants on horseback halted on the road before Sedan. I dismounted, saluted him just as politely as at the Tuileries, and asked for his commands. He wished to see the king. I told him, as the truth was, that his majesty had his quarters fifteen miles away at the spot where I am now riding. In answer to Napoleon's question where he should go, I offered him, as I was not acquainted with the country, my own quarters at Don Chiray, a small place in the neighborhood close by Sedan. He accepted and drove, accompanied by his six Frenchmen, by me and by Carl, who in the meantime had ridden after me, through the lonely morning toward our lines. Before coming to the spot, he began to hesitate on account of the possible crowd, and he asked me if he could alight in a lonely cottage by the wayside. I had it inspected by Carl, who brought word that it was mean and dirty. N'importe, said N, and I ascended with him a rickety narrow staircase. In an apartment of ten feet square, with a deal table and two rush-bottomed chairs, we sat for an hour. The others were below. A powerful contrast with our last meeting in the Tuileries in 1867. Our conversation was a difficult thing, if I wanted to avoid touching on topics which could not but affect painfully the man whom God's mighty hand had cast down. I had sent Carl to fetch officers from the town, and to beg Moltke to come. We then sent one of the former to reconnoitre, and discovered two and one-half miles off, in Frenois, a small chateau situated in a park. Thither I accompanied him with an escort of the Quirisar Regiment of Lifeguards, which had meantime been brought up, and there we concluded with the French General-in-Chief, Wimpfen, the capitulation by virtue of which forty to sixty thousand Frenchmen, I do not know it accurately at present, with all they possess, become our prisoners. Yesterday and the day before cost France one hundred thousand men and an emperor. This morning the latter, with all his suite and horse and carriages, started for Wilhelmshoe near Castle. It is an event of great weight in the world's history, a victory for which we will humbly thank the Almighty, and which decides the war, even if we have to carry it on against France, shorn of her emperor. I must conclude. With heartfelt joy I learn from your and Maria's letters that Herbert has arrived among you. Bill I spoke to yesterday has already telegraphed and embraced him from horseback in His Majesty's presence, while he stood motionless in the ranks. He is very healthy and happy. I saw Hans and Fritz Karl, both billows in the second dragoon guards, well and cheerful. Goodbye, my heart. Love to the children. Your V.B. To his wife, often, June 23rd, 1852. I have just come from the steamer, 
and do not know how better to employ the moment i have at my disposal before hildebrand follows with my things than by sending you a little sign of life from this very easterly but very beautiful world the emperor has been graciously pleased to assign me quarters in his castle and here i am in a large vaulted hall sitting in an open window through which the evening bells of pest are pealing the outlook is charming the castle stands high beneath me first the danube spanned by the suspension bridge across it pest and farther off the endless plain beyond pest fading away into the purple haze of evening to the left of pest i look up the danube far very far away on my left that is on its right bank it is first bordered by the town of offen back of that are hills blue and still bluer and then comes the brown red in the evening sky that glows behind them between the two towns lies the broad mirror of water like that at lens broken by the suspension bridge in a wooden island the journey here too at least from grand to pest would have delighted you imagine the odenwald and the taunus pushed near to each other and the space between filled with the waters of the danube the shady side of the trip was its sunny side. It was as hot as if Tokay was to be grown on the boat, and the number of tourists was great, but only think of it, not an Englishman. They cannot have yet discovered Hungary. There were, however, odd customers enough of all races, oriental and occidental, greasy and washed. A very amiable general was my chief traveling companion. I sat and smoked with him nearly the whole time up on the paddle-box. I am growing impatient as to what has become of Hildebrand. I lean out the window, partly mooning and partly watching for him, as if he were a sweetheart, for I crave a clean shirt. If you could only be here for a moment, and if you too could now see the dull silver of the Danube, the dark hills on a pale red background, and the lights that shine up from below in Pest, Vienna would go down a good way in your estimation as compared with Budapest, as the Hungarians call it. You see that I too can go into raptures over nature. Now that Hildebrand has really turned up, I shall calm my fevered blood with a cup of tea, and soon after go to bed. June 24th, Evening as yet I have had no opportunity to send this off. Again the lights are gleaming up from Pest. On the horizon in the direction of the Thys there are flashes of lightning. Above us the sky is clear and the stars are shining. I have been a good deal in uniform today, presented my credentials in formal audience to the young ruler of this country, and received a very agreeable impression. After dinner the whole court made an excursion into the hills to the fair shepherdess, who, however, has long been dead. King Matthias Corvinus loved her several hundred years ago. There is a view from there, over wooded hills something like those by the Neckar, of often its hills in the plain. A country festival had brought together thousands of people. They pressed around the emperor, who had mingled with the throng with ringing shouts of El Yen, Vive. They danced the tsardas, waltzed, sang, played music, climbed into the trees, and crowded the court.
on a grassy slope there was a supper-table for some twenty persons with seats on one side only while the other was left free for the view of forest castle city and country above us were tall beeches with climbing hungarians on the branches behind us and quite near us a closely crowded and crowding mass of people further off music from wind instruments alternating with song wild gypsy melodies illumination moonlight and sunset red with torches scattered through the forest it might all be produced without a change as grand scenic effect in a romantic opera next to me sat the white-haired archbishop of gran in a black silk gown with a red hood on the other side a very amiable trig cavalry general you see the picture was rich in contrasts then we drove home in the moonlight with an escort of torches it is very quiet and comfortable up here now i hear nothing but the ticking of a clock on the wall and the distal rumble of carriages below may angels watch over you over me a grenadier in a bearskin does it six inches of whose bayonet i see projecting above the window-sill a couple of arm-lengths from me and reflecting a ray of light he is standing above the terrace on the danube and thinking perhaps of his nancy End of section two recording by Jeff Chestnut